Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. You know, it's been a while since we've been together in the Gospel of Mark, so just let me bring you up to speed. Having gone through chapter 7, you know, Mark is, is writing the material probably coming through Peter. Mark was Peter's, uh, as history tells us, his interpreter when Peter was in Rome. And these may have been messages that Peter gave recounting the life of Jesus to the Romans with this kind of an idea. Why should, you know, because Romans weren't all that interested in Hebrew genealogies and, and things like that. So when they're confronted with, with Peter showing up and preaching this man, you know, the, the Romans would be very practical about it, and they just would say, well, why should we accept this Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior of the world when his own people didn't accept him? And so Romans being very practical, they would skip a lot of the Hebrew culture stuff and just get right to the point of what he did and who he is. And they'd want to know, can he get the job done? So the Gospel of Mark is very fast-paced that way. We have come through chapter 7. Remember, he has been up in the area of Tyre and Sidon as we finish chapter 7, which is north of Israel, a Gentile nation, not at all Hebrew. He's up there to try to maybe just have a few days of downtime. But, you know, his reputation can't be hidden. And so somebody who has heard about him, who has faith in him, seeks him out. He ends up healing them, healing that person's daughter. So we have to put him in context there. He's up in the north. He's coming out of the era of Tyre and Sidon, Phoenician area, very Gentile. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In those days, multitude being very great, and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they now have continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Okay, now remember, he's come out of that area up there. He's around the Decapolis area. Uh, he's in the north there. So this is a very Gentile area. They, uh, you know, the crowd around there probably got wind of him being in the area. And so impromptu, you know, they took a family vacation, so to say, and was hanging around Jesus for a couple of days. You know, this is a rare opportunity. This guy's claiming to be unique. He's got, you know, all these things around him. The word is out there that he's doing the miracles of God. And so it'd be, it'd be very easy, you know, at that time, unlike our culture, you just can't get away unless it's scheduled six months in advance. You know, it's very easy at them. There was times to just kind of pull out of a, an agricultural cycle. And, and, you know, a couple of days the crops can keep themselves and, and have somebody just check on your sheep or something and, and go and be around Jesus for a few days. You, you know, you'd bring some food. The weather's very nice this time of year. They're probably after the Passover. They're sometime in late spring, early summer. It's very nice. Probably just impromptu camping trip. So they've been out there for a few days. And now he says he's been with him three days, and they have nothing to eat. And I, I really like this, this is verse 3. If I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. You know, that's, that's not just Jesus supposing with generalities. I, I don't think, hardly. He knows who's out there, and he knows where they've come from, and he knows how vulnerable they are. And how much effort they've put in to be with him for a few days. And it's not just he's like saying, well, I bet there's some out here who have traveled. No, he knows them. 
He knows that they've come you know, with great difficulty and they're, they've used up their resources. He doesn't want them to go back empty-handed. He can't. You know, they're, they're physically vulnerable. Even in our time as we sit here, I think it's easy to find a devotional application to that. You know, maybe you haven't come physically a long distance, but, you know, Jesus knows how far you have come, what you had to travel to come and be around him, how great the difficulty was for you to get out of where you were. You know, uh, maybe there was relationships that didn't survive you coming to Jesus or a job or a reputation or friends and things like that. You know, he knows, you know, he doesn't just know generally, he, you know, oh, I bet there's a few out there that have done that. No, he knows you. He knows your story. He knows where you have come from and how hard it was and uh, the sacrifices you've made to come and be with him. And, and he's going to meet your needs in the midst of you being want, wanting to be around him. He's going to see it that your needs are met. And so he's doing that here, but, you know, this feels a lot like another event, right? There was another time when something just like this happened. When the disciples had been sent out, they go and they do some preaching, they come back. Jesus says, oh, you guys are tired, let's go, let's go get away. And so they get in the boat, they get across, the crowd recognizes where they're going, meet them there. He preaches the word to them, and then at the end of the day, he says, let's feed them. And they all go, with what? The disciples say that. So then he miraculously feeds them, right? You're familiar with them. Okay, well, that was kind of like feeding the multitudes in the school of ministry 101. This is feeding the multitudes in the school of ministry 102. And, and you know, the disciples aren't going to process this well right at the, at the beginning either. Well, let's, let's see what they, what they say. He says, then it's his disciples answered. He, he didn't really answer, ask anything. But they answer anyway, how, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Well, you know, in their defense, and I'm here to defend them because unfortunately I find myself in this situation too, having gone, you know, some distance with Jesus frequently, you know, I don't know if you could like this with you, you get to a similar spot where you've been with them before and it seems like, uh, wow, you know, I didn't get it again. <laughs> And uh, so I'm here to defend the disciples in some measure, because I see myself there. Maybe you see yourself in such a situation. You know, there, there probably had been lots of times where he had, he had a large crowds and didn't feed them and did send them away. I suppose that probably happened many times. And so they say, you know, uh, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to feed these people? So verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. The verbs there are pretty clear. He kept on breaking is really what it's saying there, and they kept on giving it. So they also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before, him, or before the crowd, them, you know, the, the quantity of food is really just some person's lunch, seven like little mini muffins and a couple of dried smelt or something. Nothing to really satisfy, you know, people who have been without maybe some resources for a better part of the day. This is familiar to us, the feeding of the 4,000. I'm struck with, with, again, the disciples being, and it's familiar, uh, being in the same situation with Jesus, just not thinking spiritually got Jesus here. We've got people in need. 
you know, it's just a, uh, something we need to learn as we go forward with the Lord. And it's something I'm asking myself these days. When I get into those situations, I just sense maybe this is something the Lord is doing. I'm making it a habit of putting this question before myself. What is the ministry here? Just kind of process that, kind of come up with an answer as I'm going through those situations. What is the ministry here? You know, I think that would have been a good question for the disciples to ask at this point. What, does, what do you think Jesus wants to do? I mean, this kind of feels familiar. But um, so, you know what? Hey, again, I feel very comfortable in this situation also, you know, being sort of slow to catch up there. If you feel that way, that's okay. You're apostolic material. That's comforting to me. They had a few false, small fish, you know, and he multiplies it and gives it out. And again, I'm, I'm struck with something else he does here. This is something we mentioned last time he did this. Now, if you're going to multiply food, provide food miraculously, there's, there's a miraculous multiplication of the physical elements in his hands. If you know you're going to do that, what's the point of breaking this stuff? I mean, does that do anything? Uh, you know, I think there's something loaded into that. And I've, I know I said it at the last study, too. There's something about being broken in the hands of the Lord that is... Um, a very meaningful place for disciples to be in, to be used by the Lord. Really, brokenness is necessary. And um, what we mean by that is, well, we're going to find it later in the study also, no longer dependent upon our own resources or looking to our own ways of doing things, but instead leaning completely on the Lord or leaning to it in a, in a deeper way on the Lord. So being broken in the hands of the Lord, I think, is loaded into this thing, a sort of a symbolic thing. So it says, they ate and were filled. The world there is glutted. You know, like at Thanksgiving, you're so full, you've got to breathe shallow. You don't laugh hard because it hurts, you know. They stuffed themselves. And uh, then they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, at the last time he did this, they ended up with 12 baskets of food, but that's a different term. That was kind of like a day basket, you know, like a day backpack kind of thing, just a little thing, carry, carry your luncheon. When they got done doing that, there was 12 of those left over, lo and behold, 12 disciples. Now they've got seven baskets. These are large baskets, something akin to like a clothes basket is our size. This is, you find this basket used in Acts when Paul is getting out of Damascus right after he gets saved, and they let him down through a window in a basket. Okay, that's the same kind of basket. It's big enough for somebody to, uh, maybe, a, maybe a smaller statue, adult though, to get in. And So that's a, this is a large quantity of food, seven, seven big baskets of food. So now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came into the region of Dalmanutha. We don't know where Dalmanutha is. One of the other accounts in the Gospels tell us that they came to the region of Magdala. They didn't go to the city of Magdala. They came to the region of Magdala. So it's over there, some around there, uh, but we don't know what Dalmanutha is. And, uh, you know, the last time he fed, there was a very significant teaching associated with the miracle of food, the multiplying of the food, uh, both with the disciples, and of course, here it is again, but there's a large teaching that went with it um, on the other side of the last time this happened. This time, it's, it's kind of strung out a little farther, the implications of this, the meaning of this. 
Because here, here these people are fed, and they all receive from the Lord. And then he gets in the boat, verse 11. It says, And the Pharisees came out when they land on the other side of this uh, the area, the region of Magdala. The Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Okay, well, this, this is not an asking of a sign in terms of, would you please heal somebody who needs it? That's, that's not what the Pharisees are saying. What they're asking for is for him to put on display some sort of large-scale demonstration of his power from heaven that would, that would settle once and for all in their minds that he is the Son of God come to earth. They might be thinking of like Daniel in the book of Daniel where it says they saw the Son of Man coming with great clouds and great glory, these kinds of things, these visions. They're probably thinking along those, those lines. The truth is, you know, he's been, he's been doing signs all along. Remember, if we go back just a little bit to when he was up in Tyre and Sidon, remember the woman who had the demon-possessed daughter who sought him out? And the conversation he had with her, remember he said, it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. And that was a, you know, it's, it's a, we're not going to explain the dogs. Thing. It wasn't a derogatory term. It was a way of drawing out her faith. The idea that he's, he said there is exactly what's been going on all along. He has been in Israel with all those powers on display. Remember when John the Baptist came to him, sent message to him, messengers to him when he was in jail. John the Baptist is in jail and saying, you know, are you the one or do we seek another one? And at that time, he sent the messenger back saying, Tell him what you see, that the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute, you know, the dead are raised. So there's, there's, there's been lots and lots of signs already done in the nation of Israel. For the Pharisees to come out and ask for a sign, testing him, is not a position of humility and asking, are you the one? This is a, this is a refusal to believe in him. And demanding from him out of a hard heart. And we know that miracles don't produce faith. Miracles can confirm somebody in faith and strengthen somebody's faith. But seeing a miracle doesn't produce faith in people. And so uh, verse 12 it says, But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly I say to you, no no sign shall be given to this generation. Now another text or another gospel tells us, says that he added just a little bit more in there, except the sign of the prophet Jonah, right? And so that's in the future referring to his resurrection, his death and resurrection. But the idea here in Mark is that, you know, there's, there's this Gentile region that's been wide open to him and they're receiving from him and they're being blessed by him. And then he walks into his own country and immediately it's just, Boom, confrontation. We don't think you're the right guy. You, don't, you know, you got to prove it. So it says he sighed deeply in his spirit. You know, it's just sort of a, uh, what? So he left them, verse 13, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. They had started up in the northeast corner of the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, and had crossed over the northern portion of the lake to 
northwest side of the lake. It'd be far easier to take the boat across than it would be to walk. So uh, now they're going back over a little further south. And as they're paddling over, they're rowing over, it says they get in the boat, departed this side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, now what he's warning him about is just on the heels of what they encountered, right? The Pharisees. But again, boy, it's okay to feel downright comfortable in the, in the midst of those disciples because they still are slow to learn. I like that. Okay, you know, move over, guys. I'm feeling very comfortable here. They reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we have no bread. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, okay, now he's going to fire nine questions at him here. And he says, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, uh, 12. And also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Again, we're, we're kind of at the end of a part of Mark where the school of ministry is sort of wrapping up in some ways. He has, the disciples have been privileged to some things that nobody else has seen, right? The walking on water. They, they got to be first-hand partakers of the multiplication of food, right? Did Jesus need their help in that? No. Did they get to do it? You bet. And so, you know, he's trying to draw them as he's trying to draw, I think, all people who are following him into a way of thinking about daily life in spiritual terms. And, and again, asking the question, what's the ministry here? Uh, for myself, I, you know, that's where, that's where I'm applying it to myself. And so uh, he's trying to push them past, you know, look, look, guys, you, you have a loaf of bread on board. Do you think I have any problems with, with supplying food? Is that really what I, you think I'm talking about? Let's look at what he warns him about. He says, be, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The verb tenses there are, this is something you need to continuously do. Continuously be looking out for these things. Well, he's saying it to the disciples. And since we feel so comfortable sitting there in that boat of being longing to learn but being slow to be taught, at least I do, Maybe you guys are out in front of me, but uh, we'll take this to us, to ourselves also. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What does that mean? Well, the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven was a picture of sin in the scriptures. It's a little bit of something that goes in and pollutes the whole thing. The whole, the whole loaf is, once it, once it works its way through, it's allowed to go on through the whole loaf. Um. And it, and it corrupts with just kind of puffing it up, you know, with pride. We've, we, we see that in the scriptures, that, that uh, pride puffs up, right? The leaven of the Pharisees would be then the, the you know, these are the religious leaders. Um, the religious leaders there, the Pharisees, very self-righteous, very 
prideful. And yet, they're looked upon as the most spiritual people. And yet, here they are opposing the Lord with hard hearts. Um, Be on guard about that. We're supposed to continuously be on guard here, watching for that. You know, it's especially dangerous, I think, as you get older in the Lord. Um, you know, when you, get, when you first come to know the Lord, boy, it's, it just can be such a wonder and so amazing to, to, to realize that, that God isn't some distant topic out there. He's right here, right now, with us. He wants to be near. He wants to be in our lives. He loves us. You know, you can, when you, you take it and, and you realize God is the creator. I've been lied to about evolution, and this is his world. He created all this. It's like... Oh my gosh, look how blue the sky is. Look at the, just so beautiful. You know, everything is so simple and so beautiful. And you know, you don't know much. And so it's just Jesus and wow, he died for my sin. And you don't have a lot of knowledge, but that's okay. You know, you don't know, you know, your tribulation from a meditation, you know. And, but then you get older in the Lord and you start to figure out those things and you start to get more knowledge. And those days of early love can get lost in acquiring knowledge and knowing more and knowing how to, to defend the positions and knowing all, you know, it's like discernment takes the place of love in some ways. And, you know, we don't have love anymore. We have discernment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that's kind of like the leaven of the, of the Pharisees in some way. The love needs to stay there. Yes, there is a place, a very needful place for learning the doctrines and knowing the facts. But the facts should only increase our love for the Lord and not replace it, not eclipse it. Um, you know, the, when Jesus wrote the letters to the church, you know, that first one out of the, out of the gate there, Church of Ephesus, had everything going for it except they left their first love. They, they knew how to work and labor and find those who were, say, their apostles or not, and, but they had left their first love. So the leaven of the Pharisees, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I think it's very important, obviously, if Jesus said it, it is. And the leaven of Herod, you know, Herod really isn't anywhere in this, but he throws it in there. I don't see Herod anywhere in this story, but he throws it out there. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Well, what's the leaven of Herod? Well, the leaven of Herod is the guy who's so worldly calculating uh, to get what he wants and to get ahead in the world. Um, you remember, you know, he, he had inter- interactions with the wise men, and later on, now this is a different Herod, but just so worldly as to be just calculating and cold, be on the guard, uh, take heed, beware of the leaven of Herod. And so he, he brings them through this. He's saying, okay, that's not what I'm talking about, bread. These are the things that need to be watched for. Okay, for you, uh, maybe some of you uh, mystical thinkers, notice um, something in here. Now that we've got two feedings, there's some funny things between those two that might make you go, hmm. Now, you know, the number... Now, I don't play a lot of games with numbers and, and things, but there's something here, I think, that's just interesting. Uh, I think there are some deeper mystical things in the scriptures, but they're not the main things. They're just things to make you go, hmm. 
But remember when he fed the, the, uh, the first time, it was purely Jewish, right, crowd. How many baskets? Twelve. Number twelve, deeply tied to the nation of Israel. Twelve tribes. Okay, now he's, he's feeding here uh, almost a distinctly Gentile crowd. And he feeds them, and what's left over? Seven large baskets. Seven. I don't think that was a mistake on his part, like, oh, really, seven? Gosh, I didn't know that. No. You know, I, I see that number tied frequently to Gentile churches. The New Testament has seven churches which are written to. Rome, you know, I count them up. Rome, Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. And then Jesus himself in the book of Revelation dictates seven letters to seven churches. Again, just things that make you go, hmm. Seven seven large baskets. So, again, he's bringing the guys, his disciples, you and me forward, trying trying to get his disciples to see the moment with him in it and process it from the standpoint of, I wonder what the Lord wants to do here. Uh, verse 22, uh, I think this next miracle is also kind of along the same lines. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought him a blind man. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So uh, these, you know, these people are kind of of the mindset, well, Jesus has got to touch him to, to heal him. And that's okay. He doesn't have to. He can heal anyhow with just a word from a distance, but these They're coming to him by faith, which is good, but they're kind of with the denomination, you know, Jesus needs to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Now, let's go back up to the end of chapter 7. Remember, there was the deaf mute, and he did some communicating with that guy. He stuck his fingers in his ears. Jesus stuck his fingers in that guy's ears. You know, that guy could see but had never communicated with anybody. And so Jesus stuck his fingers in his ears to communicate with him. And then also, I bring that up because it says that he spit. And then he touched the guy's tongue. It doesn't say he spit on his tongue. Don't do that. That's gross. But, you know, he was spitting there, I think, just to communicate with the guy, just to get the, the point across to him. Here... I don't know what, he, what the spit on the eyes is for. This guy's blind, you know, can't duck. So um, he just gets it right in the face. I'm sure he heard the <laughs> ahead of time, but had no idea what that was meant. But then he put his hands on him and asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Now, that's interesting because that tells us something about him. It's not like he, he didn't know, hey, what's that? What's that? What's that? In other words, he had his eyesight sometime in the past. Now he's getting it back. He had lost it. We don't know why. There's no traditions that tell us why he had lost it. He had lost his eyesight. And now, in his statement, I see men walking like trees, tells us that he's got sort of a, a blurred sort of vertical smear thing going on. And he can tell that those are people walking around, but... You know, they seem to be more like trees rather than distinctly, you know, you can't just see it that clearly. And that's interesting because I've never seen Jesus do this kind of thing part way before, you know. And so then he put his hands on his eyes again. Jesus put his hands on the blind man again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everything, everyone clearly. Then the language there is really more like, 
he saw everything with a glistening edge. I mean, it was, it was like HD, you know? So then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in town. This is an odd miracle. It ought, it ought to strike you as being weird because of the, of the phases it goes through. You know, I don't, I don't think Jesus failed to heal him the first time. It was like, oops, you know, I made a mistake. Hardly. Jesus is doing this on intention, and his disciples are there. And we're with them, walking through this kind of last chapter of the school of ministry. And, you know, I, it, feels, it feels like Jesus is communicating something else beyond just healing the man. And I think it goes along the lines of, of what we just saw with, with them not getting it, going through the same thing again with him and just having to see it again and not getting it. Because that's what happens here with the blind man, you know. For us, I know for me, maybe for you too, you know, I, I see things more clearly than I ever have. But boy, you know, I could sure use a second touch in the Lord to see things more clearly. As we, as we go forward in the Lord from our early days, you know, we just, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand anything. I don't understand. And then sometime in the future, we, you know, sit with the Lord and say, oh, okay, I understand a little bit here. I understand a little bit there. I see that a little, just a little bit there. And then the Lord gives us a little more. And, you know, it's like he, he wants us to see that there is growth. There is progress. He is changing us. I like this, that he sees, like, he sees men like trees walking. He sees people differently. He sees them, well, he doesn't see them clearly. He needs to see them better. So Jesus touches him again. And this time... I like the, it's like the, like I said, the glistening edge. It's like, wow, okay, now I see, now I understand. You know, I think that's, I think that's a message that's being handed to the disciples in some ways there to us. It's okay with Jesus if this has to go in multiple steps, you know, it's okay with him. He's not upset, he's not mad that we're slow to be taught. He understands that. These are, the, these are his A apostles, not his B apostles. So, you know, I think the whole paradigm there of he's willing to touch you again needs to be taken to heart by all of us that we don't see as we ought to. I think all of us recognize that. Jesus is more than willing to take time to touch you again, let you see more clearly. And when you see clearly, you're like, whoa, how did I ever miss that before? Well... In his time, we see, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time, right? So now, uh, we're coming to the end of kind of a section in the Gospel of Mark. We come now to 827. It says, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. This is up in the north. There is another Caesarea, but that's right on the coast. And it was a beautiful beach town resort built by Herod of course, funded by Rome, it served as a port, and just had an opulent seaside villa built for, you know, the Roman authorities, and of course, Herod himself, he, you know, took advantage of that. You can still see some ruins there, it, you know, it still is an awesome place, beautiful climate, right on the Mediterranean, just beautiful. It's not the place we're talking about. Caesarea Philippi was built by uh, Philip the Tetrarch, you know, those brothers that took over after Herod. He built Caesarea Philippi and kind of tagged his own name onto it, but also the name of Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. Up there in this area in the north, it's 
kind of the headwaters, known for being the headwaters of the Jordan. A very significant spring comes out of the ground there, comes out of a cave, millions of gallons a day. And uh, during the rainy season, really, when, that, when those aquifers are loaded up and it, it, the water's just flowing out of the rocks everywhere, and in a drier season, it just comes out of the cave. Uh, it, today, you would be known as Banyas, B-A-N-I-A-S, Banyas. And it's called that because it was where the god, the idol, pagan idol god Pan was worshipped. So it kind of became Banyas. But uh, we go there up there into this area on our Israel tours. He's up there out on the towns of Caesarea. This is probably a couple of days' walk. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, Well, John the Baptist, you know, uh, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. You know, that these, are, these are speculations that people have about you. Uh, John the Baptist, of course, John the Baptist, his ministry was calling people to repentance, and certainly Jesus was doing that, calling people to repentance. Herod himself thought Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, right? His own guilty conscience kind of pushed him to that, having been the one who beheaded John the Baptist. But also uh, Elijah. Elijah is kind of a figurehead of sorts out of the Old Testament, kind of the, the chief of the prophets. And he had a, a very significant ministry and calling, doing miracles and calling people back to uh, the Lord. And so people associated Jesus' ministry with Elijah, maybe thought it was Elijah. Some of one of the prophets, um, other texts tell us that they maybe mentioned Jeremiah. Now those are all interesting views that people have, but verse 29 he says to them, who do you say that I am? You know, that's maybe one of the most, if not the most important question in the scriptures that everybody's got to answer. Everybody does answer in one way or another. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Do you know his claims? Have you considered his claims? Are they reasonable? Who is this, this one? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Now, this is a very abbreviated account of this. It came from Peter. He probably uh, wasn't going to mention himself a lot in the account. I don't want to make it about himself. Other accounts tell us that Peter went on and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, uh, you know, all of us really need to say that, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's, I think all of us, if you're here on a Wednesday night, you probably can say that. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to them, you are the Christ. You know, I think for us as we sit here as, as disciples following Jesus here with them, I think it's more of an issue of, you know, he's the Lord Does he have the lordship? You know, I'm not here to talk about lordship salvation. I'm not into that. But, you know, does he, if he is who he says he is, does he have that place in my life as he ought to have? So he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And that's a funny statement, but you have to put it in context with the disciples. They had a bad idea of what the Christ was going to come to do. They thought he was going to come to throw off the Roman domination of the area and put Israel in a place of prominence among the nations. And the Messiah, that's one of the roles that the Messiah does do. But first he needs to die for the sin of the world. And so they don't understand that quite yet. And so 
he needs to have them keep this to themselves right now. So he began, verse 31, and here, here the scriptures begin to change in our, I think, in our Gospel of Mark, is now it's the road to the cross. He begins to lay out more distinctly what's going to happen. Now they're probably six months out from, six months, eight months out from uh, the cross. And so, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. And so, uh, having come to the conclusion that they are the Christ, he now begins to tell them what he has come to do. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's big kind of a disconnect there, isn't that? You say he's the son of God, but you need to give him advice on how to do things. Wow, that sounds strangely familiar, doesn't that? Um, it does in my own life. I think I need to give the Lord counsel on how to do things right. I hope when I grow up and get old enough in the Lord, I stop doing that. But anyways, you know, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And so then when he said, but when he, Jesus, had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, uh, he rebuked Peter, but he spoke to Satan. You know, the rebuke had to be taken by Peter, and though lest it fall, you know, just to Peter, he turned and spoke so that all the disciples could hear. And I think that he, you know, that wasn't a, it wasn't just a, you make me mad, Peter, so I'm going to turn around. It wasn't it. He turned so all his disciples could hear this. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. And the language is, you don't have that savoring taste for the things of God. You don't savor the things of God, but you have a taste for the things of men. You know, Peter here is being completely sincere. That's the thing that ought to be alarming to us. He is being completely sincere with the Lord, and yet he is still being used by the enemy. And, you know, that's, that's not a place I want to find myself in. And I don't think anybody wants to find themselves as a type of disciple of Christ as being used by the enemy. But plainly, Peter is, is acting on his own emotional investments, his own thoughts about how it should go. And he's running directly counter to what the Lord wants to do in those. So, Behind those emotional investments and the things that uh, you know we think ought to happen, uh, what's the Lord really doing? He's got. He might have a very, very different path. He wants to do something different and something far greater. And the truth is, behind those, behind those things we want to see happen, might be. Ah, we don't want to be associated with that, you know. And if we if we could just peel back the, and see where those thoughts are coming from, whoa, we would never touch them. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Um, so he had just taught them they must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Um, these are the things that are laid out in the scriptures. You know, you can go to Psalm twenty-two. You can go to Isaiah. You can see the typologies in the sacrifices. 
Peter is really kind of without excuse here. But when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That last phrase, when he comes in the glory of his Father's holy angels, is probably something that the Pharisees were looking for back in verse 11 and 12. Um, And so he's saying that's going to happen. But some calls to discipleship here are very significant. Whoever desires to come after me, and that's what Peter and the disciples wanted. That's what we want. We want to follow after the Lord in discipleship. Well, there's three things that he, he lists here that go into discipleship. Let's look at them. It says, let him deny himself, there's one, take up his cross, that's second, and follow me. Let's look at each one of those. Let him deny himself. I mean, this is, this is the... This will put us in the position of being able to follow the Lord, come after him in discipleship. Uh, Let him deny himself. Um, This isn't just self-denial. You can do that without ever having anything to do with the Lord. You know, you can go through whatever sort of inner training, whatever, and deny yourself and still be nowhere near the Lord. It's got nothing really to do with with self-denial. It's denying yourself it's really, it's, I think it's explained some ways also in the uh, denying yourself in the first three Beatitudes. Those who are, can recognize they are poor in spirit, ruined spiritually, helpless spiritually. Those who mourn, who mourn over that presence of sin in their own life and sin just around them and in their life, around them in the world. And then those who are meek, those who... Put others first. I'm not going to put myself out there first. I'm going to put others out there. A rejection of self. Really, a denial of self is, a, uh, is to assault that central problem of self on the throne of our own lives. That self-life. Let him deny himself. And, we're, and we know this isn't, this isn't an absolute thing. You do this perfectly or you can't follow me. That's not it. But... Um, you know, the verbiage here is, it's in the aortist. It means sometime you have to make the decision to say, it's not about me anymore, Lord. It's about you. That's kind of a big one-time thought that really puts you in a place of, I'm done with self and me calling the shots in my own life. It's now about you, Lord. But then also let him deny himself, and the other two are take up his cross and follow him. And these are, these are in, a, in the continual mode. The, the verbiage is let him be continuously take up his cross and can be continuously following me. And again, remember this is said before the cross. If this was said after his cross, it would be a little easier to grasp, you know, because we could see him calling to do, be like him and things. But this is before he was crucified. You know, those who took up their cross were those who were condemned to death, had nothing left in this world, and they were a spectacle to the whole world. There was only one path for them to take, and that was death out of this world. It's kind of like 
Well, I see all these, these, these doors here. They have these red, they have these metal boxes over them with the word exit over it. It's like we're signing up to leave this world. And the, this, the ticket that you're going to stamp is the cross. The cross, you know, we've made jewelry out of the cross. It's a beautiful thing. We don't have any crosses up here. I don't know, you know. People think, oh, you have a bird on your wall. Why do you have a bird? It represents the Spirit, Holy Spirit coming down. But, you know, the cross was... The cross was a shame. The cross was the, the death of a cross was was forbidden for Roman citizens. It was it was used only on slaves and conquered enemies. It was so gruesome and so bad people wouldn't talk about it. Roman citizens they wouldn't. But now he says, "You take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross." Someone who has the marks of leaving this world, going through that exit sign. The exit sign is our Bible. <laughs> Uh, I think sometimes you have a Bible with a big, just like that, E-X-I-T on the front of it, exit. We're leaving this world. Today's equivalent is like an electric chair. We wouldn't make the electric chair a piece of jewelry. Take up his cross and follow me to go after Jesus, to do what he is doing, to be where he wants to be. Um, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever loses, uh, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever in this world makes their life about themselves, you know, be all that you can be. You know the catchphrases that that are appeal to our self-centered nature. They're successful because we are self-centered and we want to be the center of everything. The Lord says, if you're, if you're going to live a life that revolves around your desires and your promotion and what is, works for you, and in the end, you know, go out 50, 75, 100 years, you will be lost. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. If you're willing to accept the Gospel and go and live for Jesus and forget about yourself, your own life, your own goals, your own, then you will find the purposes for which the Lord has created you and put you on this earth. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Well, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And the word there for world is cosmos, so it's bigger than just the world. It's, he's saying here, the whole created order. And loses his own soul. You know, where, where do you make that exchange? Where do you buy your own soul? What, there's nowhere on earth you buy your own soul. He could only be talking about standing before your creator in the last, when you've left this world and gone on, and now, what are you going to barter for yourself before the Lord? You have nothing. You had it all. Someone had it all in the life they just left. And what They left it all. Now they're standing with just their soul before the Lord. What can you possibly bring? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You know, I don't want to be ashamed of the Lord and before the Lord. You know, and there's all time, I think there's times and places where people will struggle. Everybody struggles, I think, of opening your mouth to tell somebody about Jesus because you're, you know, somewhere, some, some way, 
people get afraid of what others are going to think about them. And uh, we all want to be liked. We all want to be accepted by somebody somewhere. And to deliberately position ourselves to open our mouths and talk about Jesus, that's, a, that's a, an amazing thing, really. You, you have to be willing to be rejected by the world. And that's okay, because Jesus was rejected, too. We get the chance, then, for them to know. And they, they need to hear that. They need to be seeing that God loves them, that he died for their sin, can save them from the penalty of sin and the power of sin through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That we get to be the ones who bring that message. We get to have a part in that. You know, I, I don't want to get to the other side and be ripped with regret over how many opportunities I walked past to tell somebody about the Lord. I don't think you do either. I don't think anybody wants to do that. It's, it's not that we're going to be judged by that, but I want to, it's just one of the ways I want to prove my love for the Lord. I know, he, I know that he knows my heart. I don't need to prove anything before him, but one of the things I know you and I want to put on, on before the Lord is that we love him. And one of the ways we can do that is just to speak about him, not be ashamed of him in front of people. Talk about him. Talk about his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace. Amen? Let's stand and we'll finish there. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we do love you. We want to follow after you. Um, We want to be strengthened as your disciples. Um, We thank you for your word that penetrates our hearts and minds, shows us where we need to go farther with you. Thank you, Lord. Strengthen us in every way to be your disciples and bring you glory. We love you, Lord. Fill us with your spirit for these things and use us this week. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.